0: Hey, everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Dakota playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, You definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com. Slash sleep with me. That's spoke.com slash sleep with me. Check it out. uh, And I'll see you in Golden Gate Park at Stowe Lake. Bye.
1: Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have. Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks. And they're so comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased, Bompas donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com feral and buy some comfortable socks. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer I'm Matt Dwyer If you like my theme music there That is a band called Les Blanks Go to lesblanks.com Check out more of their music They're one of my favorite bands There, I said it If you haven't listened to the show before Welcome It is uh, pretty much self-explanatory With the title it says uh, there I converse with people Usually uh, very fascinating artists, musicians, writers um, Legendary activists Like, uh, Pete O'Neill, Black Panther, did some cool stuff. Um, today I speak with an author, Peter Bibergall, and his book, about his book, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Peter has been on my show before. He's a great guest. I love talking to him. I always feel like we're old pals. And I guess now that we've known each other a couple years via the internet, we've never met in person. I guess we are pals. Um... But uh, his book is fascinating. It's a great read. And I would like to talk about books here for just a brief moment because you can buy his book. You can go to the Feral Audio Conversations with Matt Dwyer page. You can click on the Amazon link there. And if you buy his book, I get a kickback of the money and it helps support the podcast. But I want to say to you, go to a bookstore and buy his book and buy other books. Um, I feel like I had a... And maybe this is just a limited experience... A, a small window because I, I had a conversation with a lit agent and she told me about a book I was I'm trying to sell and she was like, guys don't buy books. Um, women buy all the books and maybe that's true. I posted about it on Facebook and it caused quite the backlash from my male friends. Uh, but it, it, and, you know, maybe she's seeing the book world through a very small like, hey, let's make a lot of money. But I do, I like, I'm like, come on, man. Let's buy books, dudes. Guys, guys, buy some books. And just don't repeatedly buy Bukowski because a lot of dudes in L.A. just buy Bukowski and he's fine. But once you're 20, once you're over 25, maybe 30, Bukowski isn't as great as you think. (laughs) There's a lot of other guys who wrote about this seedy side of life that are way better writers. Nelson Algren uh, and maybe even, you know, you Henry Miller there. But, I don't know, man. Like, it's just disturbing. If that is the truth, that just women are buying books, what are guys doing? What are you doing? What do you do with your time? Hey, I like baseball. I watch way too much of it. But, you know, branch out, I guess. I don't know. It disturbs me. And it disturbs me as a guy who wants to... To write books and is having problems because the stuff he writes is sort of in this weird non-world that exists. People, they, I was also told no one likes to read short pieces, short stories. Uh, I write a lot of short, humorous things, and I'm like, why is what like, I like uh Poe Ballantyne, also a former guest of mine, writes a lot of short pieces about his weird days of being a uh a vagabond and a drifter, and uh, I love that shit. Why does not everybody else love the things I love? I don't know. I also listen to jazz music and Bing Crosby on a pretty regular basis, which is also outside of the norm. So what do I know? What do I know? My birthday is in the near future. It's been a little... uh, I'm going to be 46 in a little over a week. And uh, it really it depresses me i won't lie to you <laughs> age never bothers me i've like turning 40 didn't bother me uh i actually was like really cool with it turning 30 kind of bothered me but that's because i was homeless uh sleeping on a couch in a basement of that was just disgusting with uh, two college kids and a 40 year old temp and i, I uh, it was weird cuz like the entire apartment was a disaster it flooded on a regular basis. It smelled. uh, and But the guy in the back bedroom, the 40-year-old temp, that was his life, by the way. That was his career choice was to temp. But his room was like another world of like really nice and fancy stuff. And then we lived in this shithole. Ants had just ants everywhere. But 46, I'm turning 46, and I don't know if it's that turn... Because then it's like you're sort of in the run out to uh, hit 50 and it starts drumming up like, what have you done with your life? So I've I've in sort of in this uh, existential sort of uh, nausea. I'm in a constant state of nausea. <laughs> I'm laughing because it hurts. Uh, God, I hope I didn't depress you. I, I, but uh, maybe I'll write a book about it that no one will want to buy. Uh, Peter Bibergall is this conversation... Buy his book. I implore you. Also, just before we get into the conversation, um, the com. That's my website. Check it out. All things there, Matt Dwyer, and I'll be in Atlanta November twentieth doing comedy shows with David Koechner. Other than that, I love you. Here's the conversation. <laughs> You know what's what's cool is that uh, I think the first time you did this show, uh, and then I asked you what you were working on, you were kind of just, I believe, just putting the ideas together for what is now your latest book, "Season of the Witch: How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll." Am I nuts in that, or is my I'm not known for my good memory?
2: <laughs> uh, wow. Do you is that because you listened to that particular podcast? Every night before
1: you go to bed. It's your voice. Yeah, it's just there's something about that podcast that just soothes me. And I put on some headphones. And uh, I relive it. And and That's awesome. Maybe uh, when my girlfriend and I walk down the aisle, I'm going to make her wear a, a, a Peter mask.
2: <laughs> oh, you can borrow my wife's.
1: Oh, great. That works out. Um yes. But, All right. so this that was like two years ago that you roughly started working on this book and it must have been an, an extensive amount of research.
2: It was a lot of research and a lot of not getting interviews with people that I had hoped to get interviews with, a lot of last minute people deciding I I mean, you know, the problem is, is you you put the word occult out there and People have very, very strong feelings about it. Even if those feelings are just, it's ridiculous nonsense even to talk about it as a cultural thing. Or people who were worried I was going to be exploitive and try to make more of something that wasn't or, you know, people maybe who have just started to go a different direction with things that thought I was doing the devil's work, you know, I mean, it's just. There's a lot and to convince people that I was really just trying to do a, a cultural history more like journalism really than than anything. Um, it was it was often it was still difficult, particularly with musicians who you know, maybe in when they were younger, enjoyed sort of perpetuating some of the mystery and mystique around themselves and their music, but then later looking back, decided it really didn't mean anything where they wish they hadn't or they didn't like the kind of attention they got, which often was negative, and so they didn't want to bring all that back up for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, it's because I think, I, I don't know, like there was such a, like, uh, what, what did they, there was a phrase for it, like a, in the 80s, there was like kind of a Satan, there was a scare. There was
2: That's right, there was a scare, it had to do, with people believing that, ch- in particular, that children were being abducted to be, um, usually molested, um, in in some kind of uh, satanic cult, and there was a whole controversy around um, various therapies that used a kind of hyp- uh, kind of hypnosis to get these kids to relive these supposed experiences, but. It turned out a lot of that was the suggestions by the therapist that were bringing out things that maybe really didn't happen at all, and there was a lot. and I mean, it's not to say people aren't doing terrible things all the time, but um, the fact that it they try it, there was a kind of collective cultural fright around this idea that you know there were Satanists, much like we thought that. There- or communists you know <laughs> um you know like they could be the good they could be the, the child care worker or um your neighbor next door it could be anybody and so um and you know it didn't obviously didn't reach that level of mistrust um but it, but it was enough to kind of continue to activate um the sense that anything having to do with magic or mysticism or the occult was somehow tied directly into some kind of devil worship.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because just how superstitious we—I mean, we kind of as a culture still think we're so advanced, but it's like that was like the 80s, and people were like believing, especially like that Mark McMartin case, that these people were being flown off in these helicopters to— like it, like the stories were crazy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it was just weird how people were like, so like caught up in it where it was like, just think for a second how impossible a lot of this is. <laughs> but I think and it, does this like, do you think people like to get caught up in like there's sort of get caught up in the dramatics of this sort of the occult and like the hocus pocus of it all?
2: Yeah, and I think it, it you know—it sort of goes back to the whole idea of why do people believe in conspiracy theories. It, It's—it it helps explain things strangely. The world feels chaotic, so if you can attach—if you—if you can attach all of that chaos into a single, either entity or group or power, it doesn't make you feel necessarily better about it, but at least. It makes it feel like it's not just without any meaning at all, and then maybe there's something you can fight against, right? So you call it Satan, and then you can, if you're a Christian, um, you have ways of, you know, in in your tradition of fighting against that. Um, if it's if you think it's the government, you know, you can do it that way. If you think it's the Jews, right? <laughs> I mean whatever whatever you however people want to attach that to. And I think there was something about in particular the nineteen seventies and then into the eighties where the ideas of the supernatural or of 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 ideas that were beyond normal perceptions that people were very interested in, like ESP. There was a big, if you remember, a big interest in the paranormal that started in the 1970s. We had shows like In Search Of, and people were interested in ESP. You could buy those little boxes of ESP cards. So you could test with your friends if you had extra perception. <laughs> they had a star and a circle and a square on them. and I was obs- I remember I was obsessed with those. And UFOs obviously were big, um, big and and so the,
1: what's that? Oh, I was just gonna say Bigfoot as well was a big one.
2: Yeah, oh, Bigfoot. Yep. Yeah. I mean, even the Bionic Man fought fought Bigfoot. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it was this stuff was everywhere, but there was a weird undercurrent on parts of the culture that saw all this stuff um, as where it all met up was that it somehow had something to do with the devil, and so you also had a... A lot of, even on popular television shows, things about the devil. There were a lot of films. Obviously, The Exorcist is a big example of that. Um, A lot of the Hammer horror films from England. But I think it has to do a lot with what I try to explore in the book, which is that in the 1960s... Which didn't
3: really come to fulfillment in terms of this great cosmic dream that the hippies had had. Um, A kind of darkness descended... And Manson, the Manson murders were a big part of that, and the stabbing at Altamont was often, often used as, a, as an example of the closing of the 60s. That was the same year as Woodstock, the Altamont concert where the Hells Angels had stabbed somebody in the audience. And so not that many months later, you know, the, the great dream of Woodstock collapsed very quickly, at least in the public consciousness and so there was a kind of there was this strange turn from the positive hopeful um mysticism of the of the hippies to a uh, a darker sense and the devil kind of became this uh, persona this figure of the culture and you know it, it was starting even earlier i think we can see that in sympathy for the devil the rolling stone song um uh, you know, Satan sort of becomes the stand-in for uh things going awry. And so we see that a lot in the nineteen seventies is is as well as this interest in the paranormal and in UFOs and things like that. But but the, but when like we were saying, when when people get afraid, they really want something concrete to pin it to. And this idea of a great perfect evil, you know. Make a lot of sense,
1: yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it also makes a life a a lot more interesting. That there's like, it's like instead of it just being like, oh, we die and go, (laughs) it's like, it's like, oh, there's the devil and there's Satan, and well, they're the same guy, but uh, you know, and heaven, and it's like it becomes this much more interesting life to lead when it's you know, there's dark forces behind everything, right? And but and then and the devil, this, this is what the, I guess. I th- uh, The thing that fascinated me most about your book, but I'm a big blues nut, is that this the, the element of like the devil has been a part of rock and roll and its roots pretty much since day one, which in a weird way, I never even made the connection because you talk about uh, Robert Johnson, who actually also wasn't, which I also didn't know, was that whole Crossroads thing isn't even about Robert Johnson. That myth is misunderstood.
3: That's right. It was. It was. It was a. It was a ta- fellow named Tommy Johnson. I don't think Robert Johnson even mm-hmm. knew that this story was thought about him. It wasn't until after his death that <clears throat> it started to become attached to him. But certainly, this idea of the of the devil. Well, the idea of the devil as, as participating, as it were, in music, popular music, goes way back. Um, we even see it in the in uh the the violinist tag who was who was a sort of he, he could play the violin in such a frenzy that people swore they could see little devils you know moving his hands um up and you know moving the bow across the strings and and so there was always for a long time this Sense of the of the path with the devil. I mean, we see that in the in like the, in the story of Faust. And um, but in terms of, of music, and particularly in popular music in the United States, this idea of of this of this figure at the crossroads is is much older than well, I don't mean to say much older historically, but but it predates somebody attaching the idea of the devil to it because um, in Africa there are these crossroad deities um, that are sort of like tricksters. They're not evil, but they are maybe known for making deals or for providing, if you will sacrifice something, they'll maybe do something for you. And the idea of these deities, you know, came in many ways with, um, African slaves to the United States, and even though many of them became Christian, um, there was certainly still um, folk tales and um, certain kinds of practices um, that that would evoke some of the ideas of these of these deities. But you have to remember that even if you were the white establishment, any dis- any idea of these things would immediately be seen as the devil, because any other gods would have been seen as the devil anyways. Um, But if you are a converted Christian, you might then see your um, original or, or uh, homeland customs as also being suspect, right? So there's sort of a way of, of turning your back on your own um, culture in favor of this new religious identity. But that's not to say that you would do away with it entirely. I mean, we see um, in so much of African-American religious practice post-war, there was lots of use of charms and um, herbs and forms of divination and things like that. And that's that's always a part of of religion anyways, but we like to pretend that people— you know, don't do those things, but they do, or they did, you (laughs) know? Uh,
1: And it's it's also, it's interesting, because going back to what you were saying about, like, the Rolling Stones and Sympathy for the Devil, like, I never uh, made that connection, that that was sort of the pivotal point in where all that turned, and then that sort of, I guess, spawned what became sort of the other, sort of the devil-obsessed... rock and roll because I mean I remember it like because you go into Jimmy Page and, and Aleister Crowley and stuff and I remember as a kid that being just I guess not even fully understanding it but being like fascinated by this like he's like their devil worshiper. <laughs> like it seemed like everybody in rock and roll suddenly became like a devil worshiper that-
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly and people just said that I mean nobody even knew, there was no evidence of this at all but people just you know you would hear Black Sabbath and they would think Satan laughing spreads his wings. They must be devil worshipers. Um, But if you actually listen to the lyrics of the song, what they're really talking about is um, because of war, the devil is ascendant, not because we love Satan. (laughs) I mean, in a way it's a very uh, moralistic uh, kind of stance about about the devil. It's not praising him. It's, Shining a mirror on the culture, um, you know. I mean, if you look at the and if you look at the lyrics to "Sympathy for the Devil," it's also talking about um, things that have gone quite wrong in the world, right? Um, it's not about a um, an embrace or a worship of some antichrist, but what's absolutely fascinating is how musicians understood the power of using these ideas that they would, they are a, a very quick um, signpost to the culture that we're talking about something that's dangerous. And that in turn makes the band dangerous, right? It, it, it In a way, it's good to be suspect by the culture. You'll sell more records. I'm not saying they only did it to be cynical, but I think they certainly knew how to groove on the mystique that got created around themselves by using this kind of imagery, by, you know, singing a song that says, you know, um, just call me Lucifer, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I mean, that's that's certainly going to get some people worried um, that that's the music that their kids are listening to without really listening to the whole song and what it's about.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing that – and it also just seems like classic American culture is they just notice one quick, possibly offensive thing – or, or something wrong, and they fixate fixate on it because it's like it's interesting. Because you say that about Black Sabbath, it's like they they weren't really Satanists. There was like, but it's like people just were like, no, they say that, so it is. It's like it's really bizarre to me how it just immediately stirs up so much drama.
3: That's right, and and that, and it becomes fun for the band, right? And then you begin to evoke this sensibility more and more. And then by the time you get to Ozzy Solo stuff, you know, he looks like, you know, I mean, look at the cover of Diary of a Madman, right? Or and any of his stage shows where they were brilliant. You know, he would be on a throne with flames exploding behind him and walk down the steps, you know, holding the cross. And it's powerful. And that again, it's not to say that He even believes in any of this stuff. In fact, something that I try to make really clear in this book and in in other people I've talked to about it is that belief is irrelevant to to the larger point that, that I hope I was able to make. It doesn't matter if the devil exists or doesn't exist. It doesn't even matter if anybody really believes in it in these moments. It's how these images and these symbols and these ideas activated so much of the, I think, the look and feel and the sound of, of rock and roll that was to have a, a really big impact overall, not only in, in the music's development and in the culture of it, but in the culture at large. Pop culture reflects itself off of the music and then, and then the music reflects, becomes again a reflection of pop culture. I mean, you can see that in, um, in particular in the 1960s with the psychedelic music and the, and the culture that arose out of that. And there were so many commercials in the late 60s that start to use this sound and these images to sell everything from coffee, you know, to children's cartoons. So there's a, there really is this, this relationship between the culture and the music where I think it's in that transmission between the two um, that when I, when I talk about the occult imagination, I'm, I'm talking, about that, talking about that transmission. And so, again, belief is irrelevant, but there's something about these ideas and these symbols that are ex- extraordinarily powerful and the key so quickly into our unconscious whether it's for good or, you know, whether it activates it in a positive way or a negative way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, because the one thing I kept thinking about when I read it, especially with, like, uh, you know, Sabbath and, like, s- satanic imagery in these bands, it's like, it went, it goes on for decades, and it's like, part of me is like, is, uh, you know, you're like, is this just rebellion, and it's, is it to freak people out? And then there's, like, I feel like bands, like, Ozzy and Sabbath who are into the theatrics of it and then guys like Jimmy Page who actually seem to explore it on a different level but it's like it goes on like I think of Slayer and sh- sh- stuff in the 90s where it's like they're still evoking the same images and I'm almost kind of there's part of me that's like didn't people like get they just kept still getting upset about it and it, where it <laughs> seems like, like didn't they ever catch on and be like oh okay they're just doing this to freak everybody out
3: Right. Well, I mean, if you've already decided that these images are dangerous, then they'll always continue to be dangerous, and you'll see it as a different thing. You'll, you will see the, the the perpetuation of them as only more evidence that basically the devil has a stranglehold on everything, right? right. So it will just be more and more evidence um, that that whatever you think is happening is happening. So – and that's part of it too. I mean I think that, that – To say, you know, to talk about how the occult is a big part of of the music and the history of the music isn't just about from the side of the musicians, it's also from the the producers and marketing people and fans. It's from the other side, it's from the detractors, it's from the people who are opposed to it and how they continue to perpetuate that by them continuing to call it out. I mean, we know that's, you know, that, and that's been going on for hundreds of years. Even in the witch trials, the infamous American witch trials here in New England, where I am, so much of the, the things that people were saying about witches were basically made up by the Christian authorities. And then that later was to become stuff that... Even people who started to get into witchcraft believed it was true, like the witch's Sabbath or um, these kinds of things. So it's really interesting to see how it's very hard, and the research here was very hard to parse, you know, what was rumor, what was what people had said only to stir up trouble. Um, what about a real history of the occult? Is there, can we even really find such a thing? Because it always got entangled with, with other things. I mean, even in the Renaissance, people who considered themselves Christians were practicing ma- magic and alchemy, and that gave that kind of occultism uh, a somewhat Christian flavor. And so that's almost that's very difficult to parse. When by the time you get to somebody like Aleister Crowley, who then's trying to rip it all apart again, so. You know, I think again, and that's why the word itself is so loaded because it's really impossible to have any kind of strict definition. Everybody comes at it with a different idea.
1: And and you find that that word, because I, I mean, I maybe it's I'm in different circles, but like the word doesn't have as much power to me. But it's I guess it still is in contemporary society today. Still freaks people out when you mention the occult.
3: Well, it, it, well, like I said, I think it either it either freaks them out. But more likely, what you're going to get, well, see, I think you get, I think you get th- the three, the three major responses that I've seen. And there's there's more, but the three major major responses I've seen are one, is, that's why are you even talking about this? It's ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything. There's no such thing. Or, it's just, it's not. It, it, it it's the silliest kind of thinking. You know that. Like worse than if, if you're an atheist to say the, to talk about the occult is, to, is worse than talking <laughs> about Christianity right? um, or um, it's or people who take it extremely seriously and are very defensive about how you're going to talk about it because they have their own beliefs around it and so they have their own kind of fundamentalism sometimes you know Um, particularly if they're believers or those that are, that are worried that it's to talk about these things are dangerous, you know, but even like smart people, you know, people who I know that love the stuff that I love in terms of comics and cool music and stuff. When I told them, I was writing a book on, on the occult or rock and roll, they would often say, Oh, so you're writing a book about the the devil and, and devil worship and stuff. And I'd say, well, I mean, That's a little part of it, but, but again, that uh, word immediately gets charged, you know, um, with this weird baggage that people bring to it. Um, And, you know, I'll tell you an example. There's a, um, there's a magazine that I wanted to review the book and the editor I was talking to said, well, the senior editor here says that anything that has, he calls anything that has to do with the occultist spoon bending, Right, So, like, that people want to just put it at the lowest level of human experience and thought. You know, it's the most base, superstitious, you know, way that we can do anything, any any practice. It. And yet the history of it is, is much more complicated than that. Um, and it obviously has some has had some impact on popular culture but um you know again so i think i think there was a there was a danger in you know throwing that word right in the title and in big fun letters on the cover because people see that word and they just they have their own preconceived ideas of what they think i'm going to mean by it
1: yeah, and it, this is kind of because uh, I think we've talked about this before too it's like this is a long this has been an interest of yours for a very long time because like you talk in the intro about like going through your brother's records which I had the same experience where, and you sort of discovering this whole new world of music and occult stuff and it's like I mean this the, this the things that you discuss in this book is like this is stuff I've been like looking at since I was a child so it's like I, it's a very deep sort of I don't know uh, passion and, and interest that was poorly articulated. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it is. I think obviously my way in which I've approached this changed over time. You know, when I was when I was 11, it was all true, and Paul maybe really was dead, and you know it 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 there was it was different. than as I've you know, I studied religion for a while, and I have a different take on it. Now, My own, again, my own personal beliefs, I don't feel are that relevant here, whether even I think any of this stuff is true. But I also want to make sure that, you know, I say, in the end, it's still about an absolute love affair with the music. Like, if I didn't, if if this is only, all of this is only, interesting to me because the music because i grew up listening to just some of the greatest i mean i'm not even talking about the greatest rock and roll but really just some of the great music you know um that's ever been conceived so um and uh, that's biased sure but it's it's about a love of the music and it is a love about just the weirdness in culture that I've always, that I still, I mean, I still play D&D with my other, you know, 40-something guys that are going through their midlife crisis instead of having affairs where playing <laughs> Dungeons and <Dragons. laughs> So yeah, That's funny, because uh, yeah.
1: I feel like I'm having my midlife crisis, but I'm just obsessing about Chicago and Chicago writers. Like, I'm obsessively reading Royko, Studs Terkel, and Algren.
3: It's like, and I, yeah, that's pretty good, though. Pretty good stuff.
1: Yeah, but I feel like I'm just like it's all the stuff I was like interested in when I was younger, and and I'm just like, and it dawned on me, I was like, is this your my midlife crisis? Chicago, just fantasize
3: <laughs> <laughs> about beef yeah.
1: sandwiches and and Nelson Algren.
3: <laughs> Very good. But um, well, we have to we have to, and it is interesting, isn't it, that we really do go back, you know, and and I and it's it's amazing. To, you know, and a friend of mine, um, one of the guys I played um, D&D with, we always have this, it's not even a debate, it's a question we keep asking ourselves, which is, can it ever be like it was, you know? Um, can I, And And even like listening to Led Zeppelin, like, can it be like it was? And... It's hard. I think as you get older it's harder to sort of give over and just allow yourself to be transported in that way because it is that other voices, you know. Yeah, did, you, did you call the well, did you call the electric company? <laughs> you know.
1: We're gonna get back to the conversation here in one moment, but I just wanna take out this time to Make you aware of if you go to my page at feralaudio.com, the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, and if you click on the Amazon link, and if you use that anytime you purchase things like uh, groceries, um, medicine, shampoo, DVDs, Feral Audio and Conversations with Matt Dwyer gets a kickback of that money, and that can help us uh, keep our lights on and buy equipment. I currently desperately need a new recorder so I can do more extensive. Interviews with more than two people at a time. uh, This would help me out greatly. You can also donate through that donate button on my pages, as as well. Um, So if you really want to buy me a new Zoom recorder, that would be awesome. Thank you very much for listening. Back to the conversation. You bring up two things that really strike home and interest me because you said uh, you have. I I believe you said you, uh, you have to go back, and I was wondering if like. In a way, was writing this book and stuff going for you? Going back to that to that time when you would sit in your brother's room and go through the records, because I'm wondering if I'm doing that in my life right now as well, <laughs>
3: like going. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I think that's exactly right, and I it was a way to do it with I think a little bit more distance because I I really wanted to make sure that I did not make any you know what I say metaphysical claims in the book that I wasn't trying but I did I do hope that I was able to evoke that sense of wonder and, and fun of what it felt like or can you know listening to these records and poring over those album covers and how rock and roll then just really had a sense of of being just so grand in sometimes really scary ways, sometimes really exhilarating ways, sometimes really erotic ways and how all those things got mixed up you know um, I, I always talk a lot about I talk a lot about in the book and I it, it I think for me it's a really great example of. David Bowie's diamond dogs. I don't know if you're familiar with that album, but the gatefold cover when you open it is David Bowie lying down on the ground and half his body is a dog. And he still looks like this sort of strange androgynous creature. And so he's like this weird mythological being, but there's also something vaguely sexual about the whole thing. Um, So it's just it all got all those feelings, you know, when you're 11, 12 years old, get really mixed up because sex feels, you know, the idea of sex, at least, can seem just as weird as thinking about the the things that are supernatural, right? I mean, it feels like it's probably something that's supernatural, um, the idea of it. So it's just very interesting how, how rock and roll, the culture of it, the was really able to capture all of those inscrutable feelings you know at the same time
1: yeah that's you know that's interesting cuz while you're saying that too i'm i'm thinking about like when you said like the music transported you and it's like it doesn't can it be the same and i'm i'm thinking about like yeah i would sit and listen to music with headphones or in front of the speakers and go through the record album and read the lyrics and look at all the pictures and i i feel like does that is are the younger people of today missing out and not fully fully experiencing music as as we got to, which I think is, I thought I think all of that was just as much of a part of it as the music.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely think that they're not. I mean, I you know I shouldn't say, but there's just
1: no, we're better. You know,
3: even the idea of the album is so remove from many people's experiences today because they just downloaded song by song I mean don't you remember when the album side meant everything just what happened during an album I remember you know losing my virginity to side three of the wall <laughs> That's what was happening. (laughs) Okay. That's what was on the turntable.
1: That's a better memory. I just remember stubble uh, and uh, a a weird overhanging light. (laughs)
3: Leg
1: leg stubble on the woman.
3: (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) Oh, boy. But but again, it's like there was something about those moments where you, you know— Had uh, you that you could that you could carve a memory out of a of of a particular side of an album or, um, I used to be. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that's gone. I used to be able
1: to, and I can't. I couldn't do it anymore. But if you yelled out any Kiss album or any Kiss song, pre makeup coming off, I could tell you what album, what side, and what track. Which that's awesome. Because I was obsessed as a kid, and I spent—now right. you don't, like, you don't—to I, I, me, it's—I do think that people are returning to vinyl, and I think that is— Yeah, it's been great. I do think that is a symptom of—and of, uh, I talk about this a lot on the show, so I feel kind of somewhat guilty, but I've—I uh, do feel like that's a people yearning for uh, a connection again, which I feel has really been lost in the last couple decades.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, if there's something, you know, I, yeah. There's a there's a sense of disconnect from. I don't know. It just it may, holding the album. I think can make you feel closer in a weird way to the musician or to the artist um, than to just downloading the song for nine cents. Or I don't know why that is. I think it also had to do with the fact that and this gets to i think the 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 part of what i was also trying to get at in the book this this wider thing called the occult imagination is that you know the art of the album cover was always worth spending time thinking about and 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 looking at while you were listening I mean, I remember doing that. Like, I didn't have to do anything else. I could just look at the album cover while the music was playing. Um, And if it was something, if it was an album cover like, you know, Sgt. Pepper or um, one of the Roger Dean covers, you know, or Yes or something, you know, there was just a lot to pour over. But even if it was simple, there was still something strange about just being able to look to just do that.
1: Well, I also remember, like, opening albums and, like, being disappointed that there wasn't lyrics on the sleeve. Because I'm like...
3: Oh, yeah. Like, yep. that was
1: always a big... Or if they... The bigger thing was, like, they would just put four songs, lyrics. Like, they wouldn't do all... And I'd be like, how dare you? <laughs> it's like, <Yes>. how dare <laughs> yeah. you tease me?
3: But then some people would have really fun. Like, the Devo albums would come with all kinds of stuff inside. And sometimes you'd get a poster. Like, there was always a possibility of some... Special treat, you know.
1: Use musical cracker jack box.
3: Yeah, exactly. No, oh, you just read my mind. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so yeah, and I think that's a big that's a big part of it. Now, how do musicians evoke that kind of occult sensibility today? You know, I mean, they have to still find ways. I think they do it more, and they do it in performance. And there's that band Ghost BC that um, dresses up like. Um, the the main guy dresses up like a Pope with a skull face and upside down cross on his staff. And, you know, there's this whole kind of element of drama and theater to what they're doing, but it's still very different. I mean, Jimmy Page didn't have to wear any makeup at all. Right. And he evoked a sense of, you know, pagan, (laughs) you know, um, fertility, um, I just by virtue of that deep I think of both his charisma and his um, I'm sorry Robert Plant I mean you know just just standing there singing and swaying a little bit by virtue of his charisma and by the time the the decade that that was happening and I think you just can't we can't that that's never gonna it's never gonna happen again I mean you can just Google any go to YouTube and watch any video of Led Zeppelin live in the early 1970s and try to imagine a musician today getting anywhere near that feeling. I, I think it's impossible. It would seem like they were they were just trying to, it was like, a, they'd be like, people would say, why are they trying to be a Led Zeppelin cover band, you know? <laughs>
1: well, it's also yeah. interesting going back to, it's like, to the album cover and everything. The, the, there was a mystique about the band before you even got to see them live. There was like a whole world created within an album cover
3: exactly,
1: and it's like now it's like you if you go at least i if I go see someone I'm seeing them live without knowing much about them, not sometimes not even knowing what the fuck they look like <laughs> it's like so it's like, like they better you they better be they better deliver live or it's like, because that's all the mystique they're gonna have is what I've seen them on stage. It's kind of that's right. I, which I've never thought about till this time. And there's certain bands, current bands, that are phenomenal live, and so that saves them. But like, certain bands could really use some help.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you find? Yeah. And, oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just curious because I know you in the book you talk about like how. Uh, the Occult, and it, there's the Illuminati, and uh, Jay-Z talks about, it, like, they, they're sort of carrying the torch, but I'm, I don't know, I don't know, it's just me personally, it doesn't interest me as much as, like, are there still, like, rock bands, like indie or newer bands, that are still uh, pushing that into a different direction that and, and keeping it alive in an interesting way?
3: I think, I think, there's a couple of bands, well there's many bands doing it in different ways but essentially keeping some of the same sensibility alive. So a band like Sun um, and Stephen O'Malley you know the the the, the um, Doom Metal I guess they might be called but the stuff they're doing these days sounds almost more like classical music. Um, they wear robes and have the smoke machines and and the music itself, you know, with the down tuned guitars and really loud and volcanic. There's um, they really they they're playing with that stuff. I, I don't think they they mean it insofar as it works as theater. And that there's there's nothing fake about that. I mean, theater is a place where we go to be transported right where we give over to the imagination of what's happening on stage. And so, you know, for a band to dress up in robes, I don't think, and especially if it's, if it's done with such, um, I don't know, they're able to do it in such a way that it doesn't feel contrived, then it is a moment of theater and it works. And, and look, I mean, the earliest forms of religion, if we look at, like, um, you know, even, even in Greek religion, they were performances. You know, the, these mystery cults, people were initiated through, um, through performative experiences. People would have to imitate the deities or the gods. And, um, and so what they're doing is, is just the way people have always tried to capture a sense of these things. But then you have other bands, I think, that are really trying to evoke a sense of real um, mystery and magic. Um, I was just recently turned on to a band called Hex Vessel from Finland. And if you haven't heard it or listened to I mean, I, I urge you to, to seek out this band. It's the closest I've heard in so long of somebody sort of evoking this sense of, of mystery and, and weird m- magic. And again, you don't have to believe in any of it um, to hear how powerfully they're able to capture that quality. It's, it's interesting in the underground how much is going on with this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely. But then you have Madonna who does her thing, you know, her half-time Super Bowl soon And then you have Jay-Z who throws the Illuminati symbols up. But, and I think they know it's powerful marketing, and maybe they also just find it fun. And they, they're, they're, they're very powerful symbols, I think, even for the musicians themselves, you know. Whether they mean it or not, in its literal sense, isn't as important as the fact that they still have power.
1: Yeah, there also seems to be a lot of bands, sort of, going back to like, well, do you know Conan Moccasin? And he's like a, I think he might be Swedish even, but he's there's like a a weird retro psych garage psych and psychedelic thing going on lately. That and I'm kind of, I don't know, I part of it, I part of it I like, and part of it I'm like. really? Couldn't you just go forward?
3: (laughs) It's like, right, right, right. Like there's there's some great, there's some, there's some amazing garage psych stuff right now that's capturing a lot of this. It's really, really great. Um, What's the name of this person you're thinking of?
1: Uh, Conan Moccasin, and it's some of his stuff is really interesting, but it is very, very 60s psychedelic and. uh, but sometimes, and I I feel like, and probably some indie people are gonna hate me, but I feel even sometimes Ty Sagal is sort of treading ground in the psychedelic that it's like it's like overdone.
3: <laughs> like Conan, yeah, he, he could get it a little bit, and that it gets starts to get repetitive. But you know who's great if you haven't heard is King Tough.
1: Oh yeah, I have heard. I don't know it uh, enough.
3: The the new album is just so much fun. It's really like he he hits it you know like if you're going to do it just you know and he really he really does it so um yeah there's a lot of really interesting things going on with that and um there's um oh you know who is also really great is um the VOCs have you heard them
1: oh i'm obsessed with the VOCs and i'm actually, i'm trying to get Johnny Dwyer on my show he's he's moved to LA and he's friends with some people I know, so I'm. I, I that band is phenomenal.
3: Absolutely, one of I think of them and uh, VOCs and King Tough, I think are my two favorites right now, who are playing in that in that in that sandbox.
1: Yeah, and when I was actually referencing, the, like I was saying, a band I've never don't know anything about, and I see live, and it's them, those guys fucking tear it up <laughs> it's like, oh that's awesome yeah have yeah. you seen him live
3: no I haven't
1: yeah he's uh, and uh, maybe I'm being biased because we have the same last name but he really it's high energy it reminded but the first time I saw them there was like an equivalent of like Jesus lizard energy to them live oh yeah but uh and that's but great. this to go back to your book it is doing I can't go onto the internet without seeing something about your book so it's gotten a a ton of press, and you must be really thrilled. It's It must be doing well, the the response. Um,
3: yeah, I don't know what's, how any of that translates into sales necessarily. Um, I hope people are actually buying it, <laughs> obviously. Um, so, you know, there's there's that, and I'd like to be able to write another book, so you hope people are buying this, this one. Um, yeah, but it's been getting some really nice – Um, attention, and and it's been getting. I think what's important is, um, you know, that the music press is seeing it. And 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 I really meant this in many ways to be a book about rock and roll, almost more than I meant it to be a book about the occult. Um, if that makes sense, because um, that's the driving force, and and I really Feel like in some ways, rock and roll saved the occult, you know. As well, I'm, I'm sort of quoting Gary Lackman, um, who's uh, who just recently wrote a book on Alice Um You know, but there's this idea that 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 he had said somewhere, maybe even in a conversation with, with me that um, or online or something that you know, rock helped also perpetuate these ideas in the pop culture. Um, you throw an upside down pentagram on your album cover and you're a popular enough band and suddenly that, that symbol ends up on T-shirts, right? Um, on stickers and other people start using it and then it becomes the symbol of something and depending on what your music sounds like, if it has a kind of sinister quality to it, then suddenly that symbol is charged with a kind of sinister sense, right? Um, But what if your music isn't sinister? What if it's something else? And then the symbols that you use get charged with that. And then they get perpetuated throughout the culture. And again, I think we we really, really saw that in the 60s and 70s with the way in which pop culture responded to both um, the counterculture um, and the psychedelic counterculture, and then later... Um, in the 70s, the way it responded to things, you know, that had a darker uh, sense. And, and again, rock and the culture feeding off of each other in that, in that way. So just as many books as there are on ESP and the devil and paranormal phenomena and UFOs, there are rock albums that somehow evoke some of that, whether it's in their lyrics or in their stage show, um or in the album cover
1: art. Do you think Morrissey should start using an up, upside down cross?
3: Who? Morrissey? <laughs> just I was just I think trying that would help how... <laughs> I was trying
1: yeah. to think of when you were saying people use it, I was like, who would be the most least likely to be able to pull that off? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um <laughs> the book the book is incredible and it's I've really it, uh, it's 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 there were so many things that were just sort of like, oh, I never thought of that. And, uh, like the, uh, how, how long we've been, or pop culture has been involved in the occult and Satan. <laughs> it's, 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 what I'm trying to say is it's a great book. I'm babbling. I'm sorry. I'm a little sleep deprived. No, thank you.
3: Look, I mean, I'm, I was so thrilled that you invited me back on the show. Uh,
1: you have an open invite. Uh, you, you've always a great interview and, uh. I I was a little concerned I was uh I'm slightly sleep deprived so I'm hoping I was coherent Perfectly. Um and where can people find uh this they can find your your work and And this book—it's probably—I mean—it's in bookstores, but website and
3: yeah, I go to your local bookstore. If they don't have it, I think you—you know—they would—they would would order it. But I think certainly right now, um, it should be—it should be in stock. You can get it obviously online. Um, You can go to Powell's or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And um, if you're a library person, go to your library. If they don't have it, ask them to order a copy. I'm, I'm sure they would. They should buy it, though, because you get... I think they should buy it. I think they should buy it. The cover alone is worth the the price of the book. The cover is amazing. The cover cover was done by an artist named Eric Roper, A-R-I-K, Roper, R-O-P-E-R. I would look him up and look at his other work. He does a lot of work for bands like Ohm, and Sleep and um, Sun, and he's done all kinds of really amazing... Stuff and it, I don't know if there was a reissue of um, the band Sleep's album Dope Smoker, and he did the cover art for that. Anyway, he's fantastic, and it was a dream come true to have him do the the cover. So again, the, the just to have that, and in, in I think um, he really nailed it. You know, so yeah, buy it. I mean, I. I <laughs> Buying
1: is more important because you should support artists. And that's what I believe.
3: Yeah, I know. Yes. Thank you. And then you can read it on the train and people will see it it, and they'll sit two seats further away.
1: Well, yeah, I've been having conversations recently that people are not buying enough books. And that's like I found out cookbooks are the number one selling book. And that I love cookbooks, I buy them, but it's terrifying. People need to buy book books and fucking read.
3: <laughs> yes. And, you know, if, uh, and if you have to do it on your, your e pad, you could do it that way. But just like we said with the album, right? It's different. Don't you think it's different? I can't,
1: I can't. I've been talking to somebody about possibly doing a Kindle book and I'm like, it kind of, it breaks my heart a bit because I'm like, I love, a book, I love, and I just bought a used book today. And I read the sleeve, and I read about the author, and I've like flipped, a, like it's a different. And then I felt like an intimate relationship with this book and the people right. who created it.
3: Not too intimate, I hope.
1: I, I, I might have got a little out of hand.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it might have, I might have some paper cuts uh, at a place I don't want to talk about. Anymore. Yeah, new ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Peter, for taking out the time. Thank to you.
3: Thanks. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. We'll talk soon. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Go to themattdwyer.com. Donate if you can. Uh, use the Amazon link. Go to, follow me on Twitter. You're wonderful people. Goodbye. I